All right, welcome to episode 26 of The Plan. We have been going through the story of the entire Bible from beginning to end ever since September when we started in Genesis. And today is our second Sunday uh, in the New Testament. Last week we talked about John the Baptist and the ministry that he began, and we just, Jesus just entered the story at the very end. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off. But before we get into that, uh, get into the story, let me remind you of the story that we've been telling. The Bible is the story of God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. That's God's design for the world. That's his desire for the world. That's how he made it. He, put, he made the world and he put people in it and he gave them the job of ruling on his behalf. And then on the seventh day, he came down to live with them. And then we messed it up. And we kept messing it up. And the Bible is the story of God putting that right again. Now, normally at this point, I, I retell some of this points in between to catch us up to the story, but I'm actually going to do that a little bit later with visual aids. So let me just skip real quickly to where we were last week. The Jews have been in exile, and, and they've been trying to get back into God's plan, and, and they've been trying to uh, get God to return to them uh, by keeping the law meticulously. And last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, who came out and said that repentance looks different, that what God is looking for is for people to choose to follow him, to choose to adopt his character. And so John the Baptist started inviting people to be baptized as a way of choosing this other way of being Israel. And so at the end of the story, Jesus gets baptized, not to say, hey, I've led a terrible life and now I'm, I'm going to leave those bad things behind and start a new thing, but as a member of the people of Israel to say, I'm going to be a part of this way of, of returning to God, this path forward for Israel. And we finished with his baptism, which is where we're going to pick up today, because his bap- some very profound things happen in his baptism. So I'm going to read that passage again, and as I read it, remember the coordinates that we use to keep track of the story. We look for who, uh, people, who is the story about, who, is this, who, is God's, who are God's people at the time, and who is God using. Then there's, uh, where is their home? Where are they meant to be, and what is their relationship with their home? Because the location of their home hasn't changed in a while, but their relationship with their home has changed quite a bit. Third is the presence. How can they meet with God? How do they have access to God's presence? And finally, the fourth part is, what did God tell them to do? What is their purpose at this stage in the story? And we're going to see that uh, the baptism marks a turning point in most of those parts of the plan. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's a brief story, but a lot happens there. And it changes the answer to three of the four questions that we're looking at. So, who is the story about? When the voice of God says, this is my son, about a specific person, you can pretty well bet that they're now the main character of the story, right? So, Jesus is the leader of God's people now, but God's people at this point in the story, it's still the Jews. He's working through the Jews. He said he was going to save the world through the Jews, so they're his people. Jesus is pretty clearly their leader now. And we'll see more evidence of that in a second. Where is their home at this point? They're still waiting to be restored to control over the promised land because right now we would refer to it as Galilee and Judea, which are two Roman provinces. 
One of them is headed by a Roman governor, and the other one is headed by a Jewish king who works for the Romans. But the Romans get to decide where the borders are. They get to decide who's in charge. They get to appoint the high priest. The Jews don't have control over their own home. Now, how can they meet with God? Well, where is the Holy Spirit now? Where is the presence of God? It's in Jesus. Now, of course, if you're familiar with Christianity, you know that we say that Jesus is also God himself. But as we're looking at the story, that part isn't clear to people. Right? That hasn't been proclaimed, that hasn't been understood. So, but what we do know is that the Spirit of God, the presence of God, has descended on Jesus instead of the temple. It's now on him. And so the place where anyone can encounter God now, if you want to encounter the presence of God, you've got to go find Jesus. But whenever you find Jesus, you've found the presence of God. Now the last question is, what is their purpose? What is the job that they're meant to do? Because you may not have noticed it, because we weren't reading it in the original languages and we didn't have like five books in front of us. But if we did, you would be able to tell that the voice that spoke from heaven was quoting the Old Testament twice. And the words that the spirit, that the, the, the heaven used to speak to Jesus were giving instructions. They were setting his purpose for what he was supposed to be doing. So remember the voice said, this is my son whom I love in him I am well pleased. Well, the first reference that that's making is it's quoting Psalm chapter 2. Here's what Psalm chapter 2 says. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Here's something we get wrong about the son of God. We typically think of the phrase, the Son of God, as a divine title telling us that Jesus is God. And for the Romans, that is what it would have meant. It would have meant to say that Jesus is partially, at least partially divine. Um, but to the Jews, the Son of God is not a divine title. It's a royal title. To say that this, because this is a psalm written by David, it's talking about the appointing of a king over Israel. Because in ancient Jewish culture and, and in, in the Near East, they assumed that whoever was the king was, was the adopted son of the God who was in charge of that nation. So to say that, that Jesus is the son of God in this case is to say that he is God's chosen king. Now again, I'm not questioning anything that we know about the identity of Jesus. He is God. But what's being said here when they say when God says, you are my son, he's saying, you are my chosen king, who's going to end up ruling over the nations. But he doesn't just say, this is my son. He says, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. And that second phrase is also a quote from the Old Testament, but this one comes from Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, it says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. If you take that phrase, in whom I delight, in Hebrew, and you translate it into Greek, it'll be the same words as what we saw the voice say in the Gospel of Matthew. So he's quoting chapter Isaiah 42, which says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you, and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. 
Now, there's a lot that we can unpack from Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, especially if I read you the whole thing. There's tons of things that we could unpack for what this means for Jesus' mission. But what you find in common in both of these passages is they are identifying an individual who is going to take on the mission of Israel. Because remember, the mission of Israel is for the sake of the nations. And in, this, in one case, you have the Son of God, the King, who is, take, who is going to rule over the nations. And in the other case, you have this servant who is going to be a covenant and, and to, to uh, restore, be a light to the nations. And in both cases, what's being described is the job that all of Israel is supposed to be doing. In fact, Isaiah 42 so closely maps onto Israel's job as a nation that Jews will say that it, the servant isn't an individual, it's the Jews as a people. Because it is, the, he's just describing what doing. And so what we find in these passages, along with everything else, is that essentially what's being said is that Jesus's job is to fulfill the mission of Israel. He's supposed to fulfill the mission of Israel. Now, this is where uh, this visual aid comes in. I made this when, well, okay, I bought this and my wife painted it for me when I was a youth pastor to help explain this pattern in scripture. There's, this is the last move in a pattern of scripture that's been going on throughout the story. God created everything, right? He created the world, and he loves it, and he enjoys it, and he wants to, but he wants to be in relationship with it. And so in order to actually be able to um, have nature be more than just a machine, God chose one creature out of all of creation and appointed them to be the leaders, the rulers of creation, right? So out of all creation, God has chosen humanity who are supposed to lead God's people, or lead, lead creation in worship of God, right? That's our job as we rule over, on, rule over the world on his behalf. But human beings messed it up, and we kept messing it up. And so in Genesis 12, God committed to, out of all of humanity, he chose one family, one nation, and he said, I'm going to fulfill my plan through this nation, Israel, and when they get it right, it will somehow filter back into the nations, and the nations will be restored to my plan, and when humanity is restored to my plan, creation will be restored to my plan. But the Israelites couldn't get it done any better than the nations, right? They kept messing up and kept messing up, and through a variety of things that happened throughout the, the history of Israel, they end up being whittled down to one, uh, well, two tribes, and just really just the survivors of those two tribes, whom we call the Jews, and the Jews are supposed to be carrying forward God's purposes, and they're supposed to be able to do what Israel was supposed to do so as to fulfill God's plan. But Israel, the Jews have been failing for 400 years, and so here is the move that has happened right now, is that God has said, all right, humanity couldn't do it, the Israelites couldn't do it, the Jews couldn't do it, fine. If one of you can do it, I will choose one Jew to take this whole thing on his shoulders and if one Jew can take this on and fulfill the mission, then that will fulfill the mission for, is for the Jews, which will fulfill it for Israel, which will fulfill it for humanity, which will be the path to restoring creation. What we're going to find, spoiler, is that as we go through the story of the New Testament, that we're going to hit each of these beats as, as the work of Jesus filters out into the world and transforms everything. But at this point in the story, we are at the point where God has said, all right, if this one person that I have chosen will take on and fulfill the mission of Israel, that can be the turning point. That will be where everything turns around and things start to get restored. 
But the question is, if humanity couldn't do it, and the Israelites couldn't do it, and the Jews couldn't do it after everything that they've all been through, what makes us think that this one person will be able to do it any better than all the other people? Moses couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Why should we think that this person will do any better? That is what Matthew chapter 4 is about. So, now we go into the story of the aftermath of Jesus' baptism. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Man, that's an understatement. All right. One of the things I really like about this series and why I know we spend a lot of time in the Old Testament, but here's the payoff, is that as we read the story of Jesus in the light of the Old Testament, we start to see the connections. So let me ask you this. Do you remember a time when God said, these will be my people, and then he put his spirit among them, and then the spirit led them out into the wilderness for 40 periods of time? Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what happened in Mount Sinai, right? God made the covenant with Israel and said, you're going to be my people. And then the spirit, his presence came down into the tabernacle. And then the tabernacle led them into the wilderness for 40 years. And as you're reading the story of Jesus, that should be, you should be picking up on those connections. Like that's the goal is that, that a Jew hearing the news of Jesus for the first time would be saying, oh, hey, this sounds familiar. And for a Jew reading this story, the wilderness was the place where Israel was tested and who they really were was revealed, and it didn't go well. You may remember when we talked about the wilderness the first time and things do not go well. And so when Jesus is led out into the wilderness by God, it's for a period of testing, as, as Scripture tells us. Uh, the word for tempted can also mean tested, and I think that's, personally, I think that's more accurate for what's going on. But why is he being tested? Well, we're going to notice a link between the test that is ministered to Jesus and the, thing, and what the, what the words that the voice just said over Jesus, which is, the voice said, you are my son. And Satan's going to come and say, are you really? So the t- what's happening is God led Jesus into the wilderness to prove that he was worthy to fulfill Israel's mission, to prove that, it was, that there is hope when the whole plan is put on the shoulders of one man. So that's what's happening at this stage in the story, is it's proving that this was the right move. I'm saying proving because if I say test, it might make it sound like God doesn't know. God knows, but he's proving to everyone that this is the right move, that Jesus can can carry it. And he chooses, so notice that this is God's choice to lead him into the wilderness, and it's God's choice of who administers the test. And You may be surprised to find out that it is now in episode 26 of the plan that we first meet the character of Satan. If you weren't here for our sermon on Genesis 3, we talked about the fact that Satan does not appear in the garden. The snake is not Satan. There's nothing in Scripture that says that he is. The the serpent imagery that's connected with Satan in Scripture is actually pointing to Leviathan, which is a whole other thing we don't need to get into, so forget I brought it up. The point is, uh, Satan enters the story prominently at this point in the story, and he plays a slightly different role than we normally associate with Satan. When we think of Satan as the serpent in the garden, we think of him as this corrupter who has it in for God's plan and wants to mess everything up and wants to introduce sin into the plan. That's not really what Satan does in the Bible. Satan appears three times in the Old Testament, and the common thread in what he does has to do with his name. His name means the accuser. 
It's actually a title. It's not a name. The Satan is the accuser, and the accuser is a member of God's court who serves as the district attorney or the attorney general or the prosecutor. His job, whenever you see him in the Old Testament, is to point out when people have disobeyed God or point out the flaws in, in humanity's response to God. He is the accuser that, that reminds God of how messed up we are. And actually, the last time that we encountered Satan in the Bible before the last of those three times he's in the Old Testament is, really gives you a clear idea of his role in the plan and, and in the story of Israel. So we rewind to Zechariah. Zechariah was a prophet during the, when they were rebuilding the temple. And God didn't come back to the new temple, and, and they were, there was a question of, is God uh, done with the Jews, or is he going to give us a second chance? And Zechariah has a vision. And in this vision, it says, the angel showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right side, to accuse him. So Joshua is the, the person that they're reestablishing as the high priest. Also in Greek, his name is Jesus. Same name, interesting point. But he has this vision of the high priest standing before in God's court on trial, representing the Jews. And Satan's job is to stand next to him and point out everything that he's done wrong and to say, look, the Jews do not deserve a second chance. Look at how much wrong they've done. Look at how many chances you gave them and how many times they failed. Look at all, all how, how like the metaphor, the imagery later is he's got dirty clothes on that represents all their failures. He says, look at how filthy this guy is. Look at how wrong he is. They do not deserve a second chance. That's been Satan's role in his relationship with Israel. And that's what makes him their enemy, is that he is opposed to their second chance. He is opposed to their restoration. And that's why he's the person to face off with Jesus when God is using Jesus to restore Israel. So the test was administered by Satan, who is a spiritual prosecutor who is opposed to Israel's restoration. He's the one who's going to say, no, no, this whole thing is a failure. You can't work with these people. They aren't, they aren't up to it. It's never going to work. Just forget them. Move on. Do something else. They don't deserve it. That's his, that's his line. It's not so much to introduce sin into the equation as to point it out and make sure we never forget it and we all get punished to the fullest extent that we deserve. That's what Satan does. And so it's important for us to make that connection to remember that Jesus, this is not just a test of an individual person. This is a test of an individual person who is taking on the mission of a whole people who are in a broken covenant with God. And so the fate of the nation is at stake, and then, be, and then the fate of humanity is at stake in the fate of the nation. So everything is, is all falling on Jesus. And you can tell that that's what's going on because of the kinds of tests that Satan chooses. Because what ultimately ends up happening is Satan tested Jesus in the ways that had defeated Israel in the past. He's going to choose significant ways to test Jesus. There are 613 commandments that he could test Jesus on. There's all kinds of things he could use to try and get, uh, to try and test Jesus. But what he's really doing is he's testing, is Jesus better than Israel? Can he do any better than they did? And so what we're going to do is we're going to, first we're going to look at the questions on the test, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response. Okay? So we're not going to go through it verse by verse. We're going to look at the questions first, and then Jesus' answers. So here's the first, the first test question. After, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. 
The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. All right, so here is the test. The test is to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. And Satan says, All right, I'll believe that you are the one that God has chosen if you use the power he's given you to turn these stones into bread. That'll be evidence that God's with you because you can't do that unless God's with you. So that'll be, that'll be the proof. The question is, why is this a temptation? Because uh, Jesus isn't going to do it. He is not going to answer the test in a way that would prove that he's the son of God. Why doesn't he do that? Because Jesus recognizes what's going on. He recognizes how this connects with the story of Israel. Because if you talk to a Jew about spending 40 periods of time in the desert and then talking about bread, they're going to think about manna. When the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, God fed them with bread that just showed up like dew on the ground. But the Israelites weren't content with that. That wasn't wasn't enough of a balanced breakfast for them. And so they wanted cucumbers, they wanted meat, they wanted all these other things, and so they complained. They weren't satisfied with what God had given them. And it's not lost on Jesus that the test he's being given would just happen to also give him an opportunity to end his fast. Okay, you're going to end up with some bread. You wouldn't want it to go to waste. Maybe Maybe you should make some food so you don't have to fast anymore while you're proving this to me, proving to me who you are. What the question at the base of both of these stories is, can you be content with what God has given you? Because at this point in the story, God has given Jesus a fast. And Jesus has this opportunity to use the power God's given to relieve that fast, to get more food than he's been given. And this is a temptation that Israel faced over and over again to just take a little bit more than what God had given them or to take control to ensure that they had more than what God had given them. This is even what Saul did when Saul took, uh, he, was supposed to, he was supposed to destroy everything after a battle and he took some of it for himself. You know, it's not just in the wilderness that Israel fell to this temptation. It happens over and over again that they aren't content with what God has given them, and so they do ungodly things to take control of their fate, or taking control of their fate leads them in ungodly directions. So the question that Jesus is really being tested on is, can you be content with what God has given you? For the second test, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So, two things that are interesting here. Number one, for the second time, the test that Satan, uh, the question that Satan proposes is not a sin. There is no rule that says, thou shalt not turn stones into, or, stones into bread. There's also no rule that says thou shalt not jump off the temple or jump off of high places expecting to be caught by angels. Like he's not testing him on whether or not he's going to break commandments. The second thing is that notice in the first question, the question was, can you prove to me that you're the son of God? In this case, it's, can you prove to yourself? Because the proof is, if he jumps off and he gets caught, then he's the son of God. If he jumps off and he's not caught, he's not the son of God. 
because he's probably also dead. But here's the thing. Say, uh, Jesus knows his mission. He knows what's in store for him. And if there is any question of whether God is going to be there with him, if it were me, I would rather find out hurtling towards the ground than hanging on the cross, that God's not with me, right? There is a hard path ahead of Jesus, and it'd be better to find out now that God's not going to be with him, which is the same thing that happened with the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they were just leaving from, the, when they had just left from the party of the Red Sea, and they saw this miraculous thing that God had done, they go a day into the wilderness, and they start getting worried about where, whether there's going to be enough water where they're going. And they get thirsty, and they demand that God give us water now before we get into the wilderness where we can't get to a good water source. We need to know now that you're going to be with us in providing water. So the question here is, do you trust God to protect you when it matters? Because in both cases, they want a down payment. Satan is basically trying to get Jesus to ask for a down payment on God's protection to know that it'll also be there when it matters. He doesn't need God's protection if he doesn't jump off the temple, not yet. But it would show him, it would prove to him that God is going to take care of him. So do you trust God to protect you when it matters? The final question on the test is, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you will worship me, if you will bow down and worship me. Okay, so this one is the first one that's obviously a sin. There's no circumstance under which you're supposed to worship anyone other than God. So that's obvious. But the difference here is that Jesus gains something out of this temptation. There's something on the table. There's an offer on the table. And what is that offer? That offer is a shortcut to fulfilling his mission that bypasses the three years of preaching around in the sticks and going into Jerusalem and getting rejected by God's people and being crucified. Because remember, the goal, the mission that he's taking on is to reach the nations and to rule over the nations. That's what Psalm 2 was all about. And Satan says, hey, I'll give them to you right now. Just, just worship me, you know, just a little. Just like tap your knee down and repent of it later and I'll give you the whole thing. Now, we know that worshiping anyone other than God is, is, not what, is, is against his commands. It's against his design. It is the complete opposite of the plan where we are supposed to rule on his behalf, right? But doing this one little obviously ungodly thing will accomplish so much good so quickly, so easily. It would be so much harder to do things God's way. And so the question is, will you follow God's plan even when it's hard? And if you remember, as we looked over the story of Israel, this was a huge thing that Israel struggled with. They were constantly trying to do things in easier ways. They were trying to protect themselves in easier ways. They literally worshipped other gods as a way to protect themselves. This is what Solomon did. Remember that Solomon worshipped these other gods as a way to maintain his alliances with other nations because that was an easier way to protect his empire than actually trusting God. So all of these tests... Are, are tests that Israel failed at over and over again, which makes it likely that they're ones we fail at over and over again too, right? So the question then becomes, how does Jesus respond to these? 
So to the first question of making stones into bread, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, notice that verse is not really a direct response to the temptation. And it doesn't quite explain why it would be wrong to turn the stones into bread. But it, what it shows is that Jesus is tracking with the story that's being told because that is a quote. For, do you remember? What was the book that I told you would be nice if we all had memorized? Deuteronomy? It's the story that gives the purpose, for, or it's the book that gives the purpose for Israel that they were held to for the rest of the Where do you think Jesus is quoting from? Deuteronomy. Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, he humbled you, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is tracking with the test that's happening here. He knows that he's being tested in the way Israel is being tested, and he knows that taking food for yourself is a, pulls you away from the purpose of God. It's not that there's a command that's being held, that he's being tempted to break a command, and so he cites the command to show why he's not going to. He's recognizing God's purpose for his people, and that what Satan is telling him to do would not be the way God wants Israel to behave. It's not the purpose that he has for them. It's not so much a command issue as it's a design issue. It's a purpose issue. The same thing happens when, uh, they, when Satan tells him to throw himself off the temple. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, he quoted that from Deuteronomy. The original says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Massa is the place where they demanded water. So he's tracking with the story of Israel and recognizing how Israel departed from God's purpose in that moment. They departed from God's design for how he wanted his people to behave, what it meant to follow God. And finally, when Jesus responds to the temptation to worship Satan, he says, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. One more time, it's a quote from Deuteronomy. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. That was the biggest uh, issue that the Israelites had throughout their history, was worshiping the gods around them as a means to have alliances and to protect themselves and to get what they wanted. That was their biggest temptation. And Jesus is, is quoting scripture that shows that that is not according to the purpose of God for his people. So a lot of times we think that this is about Jesus knowing the rules and recognizing these rules that, are meant to, that he's not supposed to break. But it's not as simple, it's, it's not that simplistic. What's actually happening is that Jesus refused Satan's prompts because they violated God's purposes for his people, because that's not what it looks like for us to be God's people. It's more than just having rules memorized and not breaking those rules. Sometimes that, like, that's what I want. Right? I want a list of rules, and I can just focus on keeping those rules and not have to worry about anything else. Right? But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to fulfill God's purposes, and Jesus is aware of that, and he is dedicated to God's purposes rather than his own. So it says, Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
the really important thing that just happened. And Jesus is going to refer to it later. He's going to say that his ministry, a lot like the reason he's able to drive out demons is because their master is tied up. Jesus is going to refer back to this moment in a couple of ways, but something really important just happened. Jesus passed the test of the person who was the obstacle, the spiritual uh, being who was the obstacle to Israel's restoration, the one that had the case against him. He had the case file and all the reasons why Israel couldn't be restored. And Jesus took him on head to head and passed the test and left Satan with nothing else to say. And then he goes out and he starts telling people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, has come near. How has the kingdom of heaven come near? What's different now? Well, they've, been, they've had the court case pending against them for 400 years to resolve this whole covenant breaking, breaking of the covenant issue. They've been waiting for their court case to finally be resolved. And Jesus has taken it on, and he has passed the test, which means that now Jesus is able to start the work of restoring everything because he is able to resist the test. And so Jesus passed that test and went out to announce that the renewal of Israel was finally here. There's a way in which it's because he passed this test, because he's been chosen by God to be his son, and then proven that he can do it, that he can now go out and tell everybody things have changed. Israel is being restored. Next week, we're going we're gonna to dig into what Jesus was actually preaching to people for those three years and what his message was to the, to the Jews of his time. And it blew my mind. I don't want to overpromise. It blew my mind putting together really all those pieces of what is involved in that proclamation. But you're going to have to wait till next week for that. For now, what I want to do is I just want to reflect on what we learned from this stage in the story. There's three things that we learned. Number one is that a temptation is anything that draws us away from the purposes of God. It's not just a rule that can be broken. It's not like breaking a law. It's, it's anything that pulls us away from God's purposes. And I'll confess to you a temptation that I experienced this week, this last week, because it's Sunday. Um, we had dinner with a Corbin student who used to be in my youth group, and she mentioned the fact that Corbin has, uh, is in need of adjunct professors to teach theology. And my, my eyes lit up like, that would be... I, if you don't know, I, I wanted to be a professor for a long time, and I, I love to teach, and I would love to do that. And there's nothing wrong with doing adjunct teaching, except that I know, I know God's purposes for me involve being a husband to my wife, being a father to my children, and being a pastor to this church, and I know that I could not do those the way God's called me to do, do them if I took on that job as well. I want to do it. It's a good thing, but I wouldn't be able to fulfill the purposes God has given me. And I find in my life that good things are the hardest temptations, right? Now, you may think, whoa, you've really lowered the bar for what counts as temptation, and I'm guilty of that. Like, we've all done that, haven't we? Like, like, we've all fallen into temptations, if even good things can be temptations. And yes, you're right. In fact, that's the next point for the sermon, is that um, every one of us has failed the test and followed our own purposes instead. We all do. That's part of the point of Scripture is to make us aware of the fact that we all put our own plans first. We all end up tempted to take on things to, what, things that are outright sinful or also just things that satisfy us but don't satisfy God's mission for our lives. We all fall into that. Every single human being who has ever lived, except one. As we just saw, 
Jesus Christ, who was completely dedicated to God's purposes for his life. In fact, in Gethsemane, Jesus is going to pray, not your will, but mine be done, but his whole life is that prayer. Right? And that matters for us because, let me, let me ask you this, you ever feel like there is some divine being up there who is keeping track of everything you've been doing wrong and pointing out everything wrong with you and knows every reason why you shouldn't be given a chance and just is, you know, just this oppressive feeling that somebody knows everything that's wrong with you and why you're not worth anything? That being exists, but that being is not God. That being is Satan, the accuser. And it matters that Jesus defeated the accuser because he did it on behalf of this whole system. And that's why in Revelation we have this amazing song that says, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Satan is the one who knows everything. You, well, God knows everything, but Satan's the one who's keeping track of everything you've done wrong and is thinking this person does not deserve a second chance. And everything Satan knows is probably right. But the whole point of this story is for us to recognize that Jesus defeated the accuser. And when Satan throws all that stuff back in our face, Jesus says, I don't care. They're with me. If you think you don't deserve a second chance, you're very likely right by the way we tend to analyze things, by the way the logic of Satan. Yes, you've messed up. You've gone your own way. You probably have not confessed everything you've done wrong. There are probably a lot of things out there you haven't even acknowledged. But Jesus has defeated that accuser. And so Jesus can look him in the face and say, they're with me. In fact, in Zechariah, God responds to Satan by saying, I rebuke you. So what we find, the biggest takeaway in this story is that Jesus has defeated our accuser and opened up the path for us to rejoin God's plans for the world. Yes, there's a list of things in your past that you've done wrong. And yes, there's a list of things ahead of you that you're going to do wrong. And there is no set, the, the word isn't that you, you, you haven't done anything wrong. The good word is that Jesus has defeated the accuser on our behalf and has opened up the door for all of us to follow him. And notice that's different than saying what you did wrong doesn't matter or that it doesn't matter if you do wrong things in the future because the door that is being opened leads us into the purposes of God. It leads us into doing what we were always meant to do, but it is open because Jesus opened it for us. And so as we close, I'm going to ask you to consider what step is God calling you to take next? The most obvious step is if you haven't given your life to Jesus, if you still are standing on your own in front of the accuser, today is the best day to give your life to Jesus, to say, I'm with him. If you haven't done that, today is the best day to do that. You can come forward during our final song. You can talk to one of the ministers after church. Uh, if you're watching online, you can contact the church office or you can just talk with a Christian that you know and trust. But today is the best day to give your life to Jesus. And as we're learning to figure out what it means to live God's purposes for our lives and to pass our own tests that are ahead of us, that's why joining a small group or a service team can be so valuable. 
having people to go through life with you. And so you can check that box on your Connect card, and, and we can put you in with one of our small groups or our service teams like our facilities team. One other thing you may want to consider is whether you want to get more deeply connected with this congregation. We offer a Connect class, where, which we do on a Sunday afternoon after church. We have food, and we talk about who this church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And if you're interested in, in becoming a member here, that's a great step, uh, first step. So you can check that box in your Connect card as well. There are a lot of other things God could be calling you as an individual to do, and so as we stand and sing our final song, I encourage you to be open to what God may be saying to you. Let's sing together.